I think uh, gardening, gardening, which is why it's so funny that we got that gardening basket. I think that gardening is a helpful metaphor for prayer. And here is how I came to this idea. A few weeks ago, I set out to transplant a hydrangea bush. Uh, you see, our neighbor was looking to get rid of it, and I love hydrangeas. And so I thought I would do the work of transplanting it. Uh, and she looked su very surprisingly delighted that I offered to, to do the work of transplanting it. Because uh, I just didn't think it would be that hard, transplanting a hydrangea bush. It's the gardeners who were laughing. I would just use a shovel, and I would dig it up, and then I would move it. It's like 30 minutes tops, right? So I set out uh, in my, in my, just like ready to go. I, I had my boots on and everything. Um, and uh, now I've been honest with you that, that I'm not very good at gardening. Like really not at all uh, good at gardening. There's no aptitude to my gardening whatsoever. I'm not a natural. You see, it takes a lot of referencing Google and my gardening friends, of which I've made within this congregation already, to actually garden. And I should have remembered the fact that I'm not very good at gardening when I set out to transplant this very wretched hydrangea bush. Three hours later, two snapped shovels, and, no, like totally snapped, and, um, and, and up to my almost armpits in, in dirt, um, I freed this bush from the ground. Oh, also, I begged Paul to help me because I, I was completely stuck. Um, so it was the two of us in the ground there. It's now in its new place. Uh, I'll tell you that much. And there's buds on it. Which is, that's good news, right? Like the fact that it's... Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you see, it was during this wrestling match with the hydrangea bush and, and the dirt and nature that I began thinking about this sermon series that we're embarking on, about prayer. You see, we're going to consider the prayers of Jesus as, we, uh, as it guides us in this season of Lent. And I then thought about my own aptitude for prayer while I was elbow deep in the roots and the dirt. And I acknowledged something there. I'm about as apt in prayer as I am in gardening. Prayer, as I've previously engaged it, uh, does not come naturally to me. You see, I really have to work for it. I really have to work at it. And then another insight caught me as my knees were sinking into the dirt. Prayer is a lot like this sometimes. Toiling in the dirt to free something. Something in me or something in the world. Toiling in the dirt to see what will become of something, something in me or in others, toiling in the dirt as participation in cultivating something new and lovely and honorable. You see, for this Sunday and the five Sundays to come, a total of six Sundays in the season of Lent, we will be looking at the prayers that Jesus prayed as recorded in Scripture. And with these prayers come some, some themes that arise for us that help us cultivate our own prayer life with God. And so uh, as we go about cultivating our prayer life, sometimes it's helpful to have some tools, some terms that help us in the cultivating. I want to define two things for us this morning before we move forward. My definition for prayer 
and I'm not, I'm not saying this is it, but this is one of, of, of a variety of definitions. Um, but for the sake of our time together, prayer, my definition of it is, is communing and communicating with God. And then as we're talking about lament, my definition for lament is to tell the truth, to tell the truth about the grief, the sorrow, the anger, the fury that we encounter in this broken world. In the process of planning this series, it became very clear that we needed to begin our work with the prayers of lament. And so we meet Jesus in John chapter 11, after his dear friend Lazarus has died. And I want us to to pay very close attention to what Jesus does here, not specifically what Jesus says here. We were drawn to this passage because Jesus says something to the Father uh, in prayer, but but there's something so significant that happens in what Jesus does. And so I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11. John is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. There are four gospels that tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's the fourth one. Uh, It's in the New Testament, which is uh, different than the Old Testament because the New Testament talks about Jesus and then the early church, what happened Jesus and beyond. Uh, and so if you would find John chapter 11, kind of about here, you know, right about there in your Bible. And we will read starting in verse 32. It says, when Mary... When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for he has, uh, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took the stone, uh, took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. The word of God for this, the people of God. Thanks be to God. What is so rich about this perspective on Jesus isn't just the words that he says in prayer, but his whole communion and communication with God. And there are some things that I want to unearth here, starting in verse 32. 
It says that Jesus had arrived to the village where his good friend Lazarus was from. You see, Lazarus had died four days earlier, and his sisters Mary and Martha, who you may remember from other stories in the Bible, um, they were followers of Jesus, and they had called on Jesus to come, come uh, to Lazarus, come heal him. You can do something about this. But you see, Jesus didn't come. How often in our life of prayer, when we ask things of God, and they don't show up in the time we would like them to, are we frustrated? I cherish both Mary and Martha's uh, response to Jesus when he shows up. You see, earlier in verse uh, 21 and then in, in verse 32, both Martha and Mary, they say the same thing. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is lament. Mary and Martha are honest about the reality of the matter while making proclamations of faith. Because yes, it's true. If Jesus had been there, Lazarus could not be dead. Jesus had the power to keep Lazarus alive, to keep uh, to heal Lazarus of anything that he was dealing with. They know the power of God in Jesus, Mary and Martha do. They know that Jesus is capable of doing something to change the course of Lazarus's trajectory towards death. I can also imagine that these words, Mary and Martha's words, they didn't come out all nice and cute. Oh, Jesus, it's fine. Lazarus is dead, but you're in control. Everything happens for a reason. I imagine, actually... That these words, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. They come out frustrated, angry, sad, caught in their throats, burning in their bellies. You perhaps know this kind of sadness. If you had been here, if you had come. But it wasn't faithlessness faithlessness it wasn't faithlessness that made mary and martha say these things it was actually faithfulness they are angry that jesus had the power to do something about lazarus's situation and didn't yet that's just the honest truth you see lament tells the truth about a situation particularly when that situation is the source of grief or anger or distrust or sorrow. And I want you to notice what Jesus does. Verse 33, it says he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Deeply moved. The English translation uh, doesn't give us a very good full picture here. This phrase, deeply moved, it actually uh, refers to the sound a horse makes when it's angry. Like, somebody else is going to have to make that sound because in the microphone it's not going to go well. I don't like horses. I don't, I, they're not my favorite animal. Um, uh, but because part of it is because I've experienced this from an animal such, that's so huge and, and it's terrifying. You can imagine this, that, that guttural grunt of fury that a horse makes. Jesus' response to death isn't, everything happens for a reason. It's not, let's ride off into the sunset. It is deep 
anguish. He asks to see where Lazarus is laid to rest, to go to the place that bears the dead. Now, if you were a Jew, Jesus was, you were not to come in contact with the dead. Uh, that was forbidden. But Jesus asked to go up close to Lazarus's decaying body. And in the graveyard, Jesus isn't found sugarcoating things or saying empty platitudes or jumping straight to fixing the problem. He doesn't do that. In the presence of death and decay and stench, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in all of scripture, two words. It's the easiest to memorize. And I want us to memorize what Jesus is doing here because he is lamenting. Jesus is telling the truth about sorrow. He is telling the truth about the effects that death and decay have ever before he does anything to redeem or to resurrect or restore it. He laments. He acknowledges for himself that this is not how the divine intended things to be. And this moves him to sorrow and to anger and to tears. Makes the sound a horse makes when they're angry. It has been the effort of some to claim uh, that this part of the story, that Jesus' anger and deep sadness, his weeping, is, is proof of Jesus' humanity. That the human parts of him uh, were, were the things that experienced these negative emotions. And that later in the story, the divine parts of Jesus kind of kick in, I suppose, to raise Lazarus from the dead. But this is a, a faulty argument that hangs, on a, hangs its conclusion on heresy. You see, the mystery of Jesus is that Jesus is fully God and fully human. There weren't certain parts of Jesus that were divine and other parts of Jesus that were human. All divine, all human, all of it. Not just divine when he's saying nice things and healing people. Not just human when he's sad or frustrated or hangry or sleeping. So what we see here in response to death is the divine and the human are deeply anguished. God, the divine, is deeply anguished by death and decay. God is troubled by the destructive forces of sin in the world. And before anything could ever be done about these things, God weeps. Jesus weeps. Your feelings of anger and sorrow and sadness and frustration and fury at the destructive nature of sin in the world, it is actually evidence, proof, that you were made in the image of God. If God is anguished by these things and you were made in the image of God, then you, in your anguish in these things, are, are, are a reflection of God's image in you. Too often, well-meaning Christians, even well-meaning churches, have dismissed or sought to dismiss these, these negative emotions of the human experience as being sinful, the sinful human parts of us. 
It's as though we've tried to amplify the power of the resurrection by dismissing anger, sadness, hopelessness, fear, and fury. We've said that those things are so two millennia ago. Because now we know the power of Jesus, that he resurrected, that he restored all things through the power of the resurrection. And instead of, of telling the truth about the situation, we've hidden the truth behind the facade of religious happiness or hopefulness. We haven't even contended then with the nature of our distress. It's as though we've plucked only the pretty flowers of the garden, leaving the soil, the manure, the mess, and forgetting about the, the harsh sticks and stones that held the garden together during the winter. If prayer is like gardening, lament is the soil and the sticks and the rocks of our prayer life. Perhaps I'd like to take it one step further. Lament is the manure, the fertilizer, that because of the redeeming work of Jesus brings richer and fuller life. We cannot embrace the fullness of life by ignoring the reality of death and destruction. We cannot flourish as a community of people who love and want to follow Jesus if we're always look, uh, looking to sugarcoat sin and its effects, if we're always looking to hide or disregard our faults, if we're looking to dismiss our complicit acts that demolish others, if we're willing to just settle into ignorance, of the suffering of the world. This is not the way of Jesus. Jesus wept. You see, this uh, gardening apprentice is learning that, that a garden flourishes when it's fertilized. And what makes the best fertilizer? Manure and compost. Excrement and decaying stuff. This is gross. And lament is sometimes gross. That which is most unpleasant, the, the rotting bits of what was formerly alive, is what becomes nourishment for plants to thrive. That's ridiculous. And so if we apply that to prayer, to forgo lament is to deprive the spiritual life of the nourishment it needs to live as an image bearer of the divine. Back to John 11, verse 40. Jesus has now uh, encountered Lazarus's dead body, and it, it stinks. It really stinks. He smells, Jesus does, the effects of death. And with the stench around him, with, with death literally right next to him, Jesus tells Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I always thought that this phrase was kind of a precursor to what he was about to do, right? Raise Lazarus from the dead. But could it also be that he is pointing back to what he just did? Could it be that the glory of God is displayed in Jesus' anguish, in the destruction that sin has caused? Could it be that the glory of God is displayed in our anguish, in the destruction that sin has caused? Could it be that our belief in 
And God is also found in telling the truth about sorrow and anger and loss and decay. You see, it's only after Jesus laments that there is ever resurrection. This is true here. It's true at the cross. It's true throughout scripture. Only after lament, telling the truth about what has gone on, is there ever life afterwards. As I looked around my uh, garden a few weeks ago, I wondered if life would ever come from the sticks in the ground and the dirt all around. You see, we, uh, we, hadn't, we haven't even lived in our house a year yet. Uh, and so I didn't I, I saw the house in, in springtime, after spring had definitely sprung. And so I thought, wow, this looks great. Uh, but under my care, would this garden do the same thing? And, and when I looked around just a few weeks ago, I thought, for sure, certainly, I've killed the whole thing. Um, there, is no, there is nothing left. Uh, and I, I try as I might. I, you know, we've moved a lot of dirt around. We've moved some things around. But, but perhaps... I've just killed this whole thing, and it will never become what I remember it being when we moved into that house. I've wondered if life would ever come from those sticks in the ground. I wonder if all my efforts would really become of something. Did they even really matter? Was my work in the garden ever going to prove of anything? Sometimes prayer feels this way. Like there's a whole lot of sticks and dirt and nothing to show for it. It feels sometimes like God doesn't respond in the time we want it to take. That we would wish God would, would make flowers come from the sticks of the ground in January. And instead of intervening, it feels like there is just constant death and, and destruction and anguish and pain. I think of Ukraine. I think of those who suffer devastating illnesses. I think of those who have buried loved ones, those who have walked with people in addiction, those who have attended to their own failures and regrets, those who have lived with the consequences of the failures and regrets of others. Sometimes prayer feels like we're just moving dirt around. Nothing to show for it. But there is something about the dirt. There's something about lament, the compost, the manure. And I can't guarantee that everything will come out like you want it to when you lament. Oh, I wish I had the power to make all good things spring out of the ground for you right after you lament. But I am assured because of this passage in John 11 uh, that God is lamenting with you, that God laments first. That the divine who loves us wants to be with us in the decay and the soil in those parts of our lives. And that God, when we're honest about the soil and the decay, God would, would make it of something. Perhaps not what we want it to be perhaps desperately, what we want it to be, and God won't do it. But God wants to make something of it. And that God would use the dirt and be in the dirt to remind us that we will never be alone. 
This morning, you uh, came into the service and you received a piece of brown paper. And if you don't have one, we have some friends who are available to get you a piece of brown paper. So would you just wave or holler? Or We have some friends over here who need some paper. Thank you, Pastor. Here's what I want us to do. If you've never lamented before, if, if, if lament is not a practice that you uh, find yourself doing often or feel comfortable with, uh, it could be it could be overwhelming and a bit scary. And so I want to invite us uh, into a simple practice of lament. I want you to consider something uh, that you have encountered that looks like death or decay or grief or sorrow, a frustration, a way you feel like you've been let down. And I, I invite you to, to write that on that piece of paper. There are pens uh, in the pew or in the chairs in front of you. Uh, if you have a long list, I invite you to, to write it all. God is not afraid of these lists. God is not afraid of lament. God laments first. And you writing these things down acknowledges the truth that God already is lamenting these things. And we're going to do something uh, new. We're going to return to something. It is important uh, as we emerge from this pandemic that we come back to the table again. Uh, and so when our communion will be, um, you'll come forward. Kids, would you come forward too? Find a cozy spot with your with your family, and we are uh, when when after the communion liturgy, we are going to invite you forward for communion. And um, with your prayers of lament, did you find your families? Oh, good job! With your prayers of lament, we have two jars up here, and I would invite you to take those prayers and crumple them. I'm learning that compost involves paper, too, sometimes. The worms like that, right? Okay. Um, and so these prayers, these crumpled laments, will be offered into these jars. They will remain confidential. We may put them on, not put the prayers on display, but put the jars on display so that we can remember the work of lament. Um, but as we are coming forward for communion, we'll invite you to drop your prayers of lament in those jars and then to receive uh, the gift of a meal from God. And it's our, it's our hope that, that being honest about these things, both the truth uh, and the decay, and also the truth that God is with us in these things, would open up our prayer lives would fertilize our prayer lives and would invite us into deeper communion with a God who desperately loves us. And so allow me to pray as we move to the table. Oh God, we always want the good stuff. And it is scary and overwhelming at times to lament the stuff that isn't well. To acknowledge our own participation in sin. To be met 
again and again by stuff that doesn't feel right. So God, we offer these laments in humility to you, knowing that you will do something with them, believing that you are doing something with us as we lament. And we ask that even though we can't see what it is, even though we don't understand why, that even the act of lamenting would bring us to communion with you. And so just as you've created the cycle of life and death, in our lamenting would we also receive the gift of your life at this table.